Father, we are desperate to hear from you. We are completely lost outside of you. <coughs> Father, you've given us your word, and you've told us in that word, and because of that word, Lord, because it is truth, that we can be free. Father, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would free us from the shackles of the sin that bind our heart. Father, that we would be free to worship you. That we would be free to see you for who you are. And that we would walk in that freedom, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen. Church, I have one desire for you. And that is for you to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It may seem like a simple thing. It may seem like a no-brainer. But yet, there's this warning that Jesus gave to his church, to his people, when he said that many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did I not do? Did I not do these things in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, for you never knew me. And I don't know you. There is a deception that is out there that I want to make sure that we do not fall into. I want us to know Jesus Christ. We live in a time and a place where civility has seemed to have gone out the window. The warning that Paul gave to Timothy seems to have come into full effect all around us. When he said, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. We are living in the last days. But don't think that this means that Christ's return is imminent. The last days began when Christ ushered in the new covenant when he sealed it with his own blood. And even before sealing that covenant, the truths of 2 Timothy were already in the full effect, as we're going to see in our section of scripture today. In it, we see Jesus in the court of women on the Temple Mount, surrounded by a large gathering of people. And within that mass of people, there were at least three groups. 
The first group were his disciples, who have no part of any of the conversations that are taking place. They're standing there, watching, learning, being completely amazed at their master as he fearlessly takes on everyone. We in our culture, in our day and age, in our evangelicalism, have been brainwashed by fairy tales concerning Jesus. We believe that he's a lamb, meek and mild. We've allowed so many second commandment violations in our life that portray Jesus as a long-haired white guy who always has children on his lap, who always has butterflies floating around him, who was more like that hip and with it emasculated youth pastor that we desire, allow, and even promote as the guy who should be teaching our children. That when we read accounts such as this one, we miss the reality of who Jesus is and what is actually happen happening, or we just gloss right over it. Jesus was meek and mild but we have a bad understanding of what those things are. Jesus was fearless. He was not meek as we think that he was. A meek man does not stand up in the middle of a church and proclaim that what is going on there has no value and that he is the bread of life. A meek man does not interrupt a false worship service by proclaiming that he possesses the water of life. Meek does not mean weak. In English, meek means gentle, soft, easily manipulated. But that's not the meaning of meek from the Bible. The word for meek in Greek means strength under control. The picture that we're supposed to understand is those ancient war horses that the Greeks trained to charge headlong into battle. That's the definition of meekness. They were strong, powerful, and completely obedient to their masters. And he was not mild as we have been taught that he is. A mild man does not jump into the middle of a pack of false teachers and take them on single-handedly. C.S. Lewis said of Jesus, he was not a tame lion, but he was very good. We have been sold the bill of goods, made to think that Jesus was that guy, the one that hangs out with women, the one that all the moms want their daughters to date because he's safe, the one that would always smile when he was being picked on by the bad guys, who would always be polite to the bullies that pushed him around, knocked him to the ground, kicked sand in his face. Until one day he stood up and he would take it no longer. This is completely opposite of who Jesus is. Jesus is a man's man. He was the son of a carpenter. Carpenters in his day were stonemasons. They worked with large beams of wood, large stones, heavy tools. His hands were calloused. He had broad shoulders, strong arms, a strong back. But his strength of body was nothing compared to his strength of character. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of a strong will. A man of strong, offensive, truthful words. And he never backed down 
from a confrontation. In fact, he started this confrontation. This confrontation. He didn't seek fights because he had something to prove or because he was a bully or because he loved controversy. He was spoiling with the fight with these people because these men, this religious system, this temple, all mocked his father. And that was not okay with him. So he confronted them with reality, with truth, fearlessly, openly, and divinely. And unlike the Jesus that's portrayed in Sunday schools, on flannel grams, in most evangelical churches, the one who never picked a fight, who never confronted, who allowed himself to be pushed around and picked on, the one who was a victim his whole life all the way to the cross, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible was the exact opposite of that. He never was pushed around. He never allowed people to talk trash about his father. And then at the end of his time on earth, to prove that all that he had stood for, all that he had said, all that he had done was truth, he demonstrated meekness, his mildness. When they came for him, he submitted to the will of his father. He stood down and allowed the fleas to arrest him, allowed the worms to mock him, allowed the flies to bite him, and allowed the maggots to crucify him. And through this process, he never said a word to them. He submitted to having people lay hands on him, allowed himself to be mocked openly, spit on, slapped, tied up, beaten, and then killed. This was power, strength under control, under submission. He was meek and mild. And that he allowed that to happen on that day should shock us because he had never allowed it to happen before. We've been told multiple times that the Jews wanted to arrest him, to lay hands on him. These men who he's talking to now had already sent their goons to get him. And those men had returned empty-handed. Saints, before we even begin to start digging into his word, let us make sure that we know whose word it is that we're digging into. You may think that this is a small thing, an insignificant thing, but as we've seen before in John, how and what we think about the Messiah matters. Jesus would not be their Messiah, and he won't be yours either. You must change your mind. Undo all those mainstream lies about him that you've allowed into your eyes, into your ears, and into your heart. You think those things haven't affected you? Then you really are as blind as you are ignorant. Because do you know why corporations spend billions of dollars every year on commercials and ads, the ones you see in here? Because they know it's a proven fact that what you see, 
what you hear does affect you. It does taint your sense of reality. We have to ask ourselves, what is our goal? Who is our master? Who are we trying to emulate and become? We need to stop trying to become so-called men like Joel Osteen. Pretty men. Nice hair. He's cool. Hip. With it. Always pleasant. Never confrontational. Not willing to take a stand. Even when asked a clear question about the Jesus that he claims to preach and love. Men who care more about their outward appearance and spend more time and money and effort to making themselves look good than they spend on what really matters. Character, knowledge, wisdom, Christ-likeness. Those men are whitewashed tombs. They're empty vessels. They have no inner strength, and they will run and fold when the day of trouble comes. We should emulate men like Paul Washer, a man who cares very little about appearances, a man that does not have an issue with truth, a man who will confront our culture, will tell people truth, will offend them with truth. Or a man like John MacArthur, who has no issue proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ as the only means to the Father, to eternal life. Men who spend more time on their knees than they do in front of a mirror. Men who spend more time in the word of God than they do in front of a screen. And the reason for this is that Jesus is the Messiah. But he is his Messiah, not ours. He is who he is. I am that I am. I am the bread of life. I am the, the light of the world. He is self-determining, and therefore, if we are to have any part of that bread, of that life, we must come to that Messiah. This was the Messiah, the first group. The disciples were following, were watching, and would learn to emulate. And then there's the second group. Those that were called the Jews in verse 22. The ones that began this confrontation with Jesus. And that all goes back and began in verse 12. When Jesus proclaimed to them, to all of them, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In that statement, he proclaims truth. Amazing truth. There, in that statement, a contrast, a challenge to the status quo, a division that went against all conventional wisdom. Those that follow this man do not walk in darkness, and they will possess the light of life. And those that don't follow this man will walk in darkness and do not possess the light of life. The Pharisees, who confront Jesus, rightly understood what he has just said. And for that reason, they've had enough of this guy. So they publicly challenge him. 
And their initial challenge was not concerning what he said or even the claims that he made. Their challenge was against his authority by which he made these claims. They said that he couldn't make such a claim because he had his own witness. He was the only witness. He needed verification. He needed other witnesses to validate his claim. So Jesus willingly answered their objection. He pointed to the witness of his eternal state and the one who had sent him, which is why what he said was of such great importance. I am the light of the world. He has just taken on the mantle, the full and complete mantle of God. And his response to their challenge proves that this was exactly what he meant in that statement. You need two witnesses. You desire two witnesses. I am one. And the Father, the I am, is the other. He ends his first round with these men by telling them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you are not able to come. Which then brings us to the next round with this group, verses 22 through 29. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you can't come? He said to them, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. They began by openly trying to mock him once again and asking if he's going to kill himself. What they're implying is that he's going to go commit suicide somewhere, which in their theology would have sent him straight to hell. And he silences their cute little smug accusations by making a startling statement. These men, the religious leaders, the theological giants, the Billy Grahams of their day, the mega church leaders, the men who openly preach a meek and mild God are not godly at all. They are from below. They are of this world, and they will die in their sins. Saints, hear me on this. If we are ever to preach salvation to anyone, the gospel to anyone, we must make sin the issue that separates them from God. We must be like Jesus in this. If we are not of him, we will die in our sin, which means that we have all sinned which means that our sinning is what has caused the separation between us and God, which means that we are dead already in our trespasses in sin, Ephesians 2.1. Their sin had already separated them from God, and there is no way, no how, that they're going to be in heaven where Jesus is, outside of him. We must be ready to challenge the notion that death brings about salvation. We must be willing to tell people the awful truth of sin 
And we must be willing to stand against those that will tell you that their granny, their dad is looking down on them from heaven. That person that never darkened the door of a church, that never bowed their knee this side of eternity to Christ, who never had any fruit of repentance, obedience to the Lord at all. That person who still is a person, an eternal person, is not in heaven. They died in their sins. Wow, that's unkind. Way to go. Kick a person when they're down. Trample on the grave of their dead relative. If you care at all about that person, that one that's telling you that their relative is in heaven, or care about that man who should know better, but who is lying about the eternal state of a person at a funeral just to make people feel better, if we care about them at all, then the loving, kind, and compassionate thing to do is to tell them the truth. Otherwise, they themselves may end up with their dad and their granny. But more importantly, more precisely, we should care about the one who we say saved us from that eternal hell. The one that we say has washed us whiter than snow, has regenerated our hearts. These people are trampling on that one. They're openly mocking him, openly talking trash about him, openly impugning his character. Would you stand by and allow someone to do that to your wife, to your spouse, or to your mother? Then why would you stand by and allow mere mortals to mock your God? Jesus wouldn't. He once again reiterates the fact that he is going someplace that they will not be able to come. And then tells them, once again, that unless they believe that he is the I am, they will die in their sins. And the response to him is classic. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? One limiting thing about the word is that it's one-dimensional. We do not, cannot know the voice inflections of the things said. We can't see the body language of the people talking. We can't see their facial expressions. Was this a serious question? Who are you? Were these men trying to figure out, trying to stand there and figure out who this guy really is? Or were they incredulous? And this was more of a statement than a question, more of an accusation rather than a question. Who are you? The answer that Jesus gives them doesn't help us in figuring this out either. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. What he didn't do is dumb down the gospel to make it more seeker-friendly. 
Because it seems like these guys are interested about knowing more about him, asking, who is he? Come on, Jesus, give him something sugary, something kind, something that they'll like, something that they'll make, that'll actually make them feel good about themselves. Nope. He tells them that he has much to say to them and much to judge and then follows up this truth by telling them that the one that sent him is true and that he, Jesus, alone has access to this truth. Verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Once again, we are faced with the reality that outside of Christ, those outside of the family of God cannot understand the things of God. We must get used to this, comfortable with this, because this is truth. Let's jump back over to that Ephesians 2 chapter that I was reading. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the, curse, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul, this letter by Paul was written to saints, just like you and me. It's not written to the unsaved world. And in the middle of this letter, Paul reminds these saints of the reality of who they were and who they are and how they got there. Reminds them and us that there is a division within humanity. There are two families. And you don't move from one family to the other on your own. No one in the family of the prince of the power of the air, sees the family of God as appealing. No one who is in the family of the sons of disobedience looks at Jesus and says, yeah, that's the guy for me. I choose him. No one. And death doesn't move you there either. So how does that happen? Well, Paul is clearly telling these people that were once part of that family. They were once part of that family of Satan, as were we. So how did they move to being sons of God? How did they get adopted into that family? Verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You move from one family to the other only by God, but God. In our account of John, Jesus then takes these men, these men, the ones who are supposed to be the light of the world, who were supposed to be teaching and proclaiming the light of the world, the men who use God's word, his law, and his temple as their foundation to preach and teach a false God. He takes them to the end game. Verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Can you see how meek and mild this Jesus is? These men wanted him dead, wanted to kill him. They, at this time, probably had not figured out yet how to do that. But the thought, the mere thought that they could, they could ultimately humiliate Jesus by having the Romans kill him, put him on the cross, that would have made them giddy with excitement. Jesus is leading these men to that end. He knows the end game. He knows what lies ahead of him. He knows that the ultimate demonstration that he is the I am will be in the ultimate humiliation of his mortal body. It will be at the cross that the fullness of his humanity will be on display as he suffers. It will be on that cross that the fullness of his deity is on, on display as he submits to the will of the Father and has his eternal incomprehensible fury hurled at him. And it is there that the proof that these men will die in their sins is validated. And what were the effects of the preaching of the cross? Verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Here is the third group on that day. Remember the first group is his disciples, the men who have already had their hearts regenerated to believe that Jesus is Lord, at least to the ability that they could prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. They stood silently beside this man as he proclaimed things that made them a little bit uncomfortable. I am the bread of life. I am the giver of the water of life. I am light. They stood by watching, listening as this single solitary man took on the power brokers of that day, took on the complete religious system, the entire false Jewish religion of that day. And it was those men, that leadership, that Jesus stood against. They were the second group. And they were those in that mass of people around them that stood with that second group, stood by them and their challenges to this man who made such stupid and audacious claims. But then there's this third group. Those that because of the things that Jesus is doing and saying, 
the manner in which he is standing up for his father. They believe. And because of that, he leans over and gives them a hug. Gives them a gold star, a, a participation trophy. Pats them on the head and tells them, welcome to the family. Verses 31 through 34. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What Jesus has just told them had, should have made them leap for joy. They will know truth, and the truth will set them free. But from the very onset, the statements that he made to them offended them. What do you mean we must abide in your word to be your disciples? Abide means to live in, to hold on alone. Are you saying that we must jettison all the former things of this false religion that we held? the youth groups, the Sunday schools, the programs, the committees that divide the body, those things that make us feel so good, are you saying that those things are enslaving us? That we are in fact slaves now? That you are different than the religion that we are following? I thought you were our Messiah, the Messiah that was part of our religion, that add-on thing that's going to bring about all those things that we desire in this life. I thought I could believe and remain here and that you would be okay with that. That I could be your secret disciple, an insider, a spy. That I could remain within the temple and the sacrifices. That I could continue here with my friends and once in a while tell them that what the leaders are saying isn't really true. That would be okay, wouldn't it? Can't I be, dis can't I be your disciple and do that? And what do you mean you're going to set us free? We are free. They think that he's talking about, I'm sorry, they were not thinking about eternal reality. They were thinking about the here and the now. But even the funny thing about that, the ironic thing about that, is in that reality they weren't free. Because not very far from where they were standing was a garrison of Roman soldiers who would pour, come pouring out to show them just how not free they were at the drop of a hat. And there were tax collectors set on every mile marker on the roads to tell them, to remind them that they were a conquered people. Can you see how the human mind can play games with reality? They claim to be free then, there, as he's talking to them. Yet they weren't free. Their country was a conquered country with a head of state over them that told them how they were going to live. But because that conquering state gave them some semblance of self-autonomy, they thought that they were free. But if, even if they had a rudimentary understanding of their history, of their people, they would know that they have been enslaved, conquered many times before.
But this kind of slavery, this kind of conquering, was not what Jesus was referring to. And he clarifies what he means about obeying him, what it means to be his disciple. Verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. How Jesus answered these people, the people that John has said believed in him is important. He begins with a phrase that anybody who has read the Gospel of John has heard before. Truly, truly. You may have been told that this was the Jewish way of using all caps. The Jewish way of placing emphasis on something. Well, it is that. But it's much more than that. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, when a prophet of God was given a message from God, he would go to proclaim that message beginning with, thus says the Lord, as in Zechariah 1.3. Therefore, say to them, thus declares Yahweh of hosts, return to me, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. This is what truly, truly means. Thus says Yahweh. Once again, Jesus is proclaiming his unique relationship with the God that these people, all of these people, say that they know, that they have a relationship with, that they are part of his kingdom. He is challenging what we would call Christians with the reality of salvation. Think about this for a minute. Where is he standing at that moment? In the temple. What temple? The one that was supposed to be the dwelling place of the I Am. And who were the men of that second group? The religious leaders of that temple, of the dwelling place of God. The men that on a daily basis acted in what they said was obedience and submission to God. And what is the very thing that he is telling these men, telling all these people who claim to know God, claim to worship God, claim to be part of the family of God? You do not know me, and you don't know God. You are the sons of the devil not the sons of God, because you worship a man-made, man-influenced, and man-pleasing God. And what he says is transformative, eye-opening, and completely revelatory. He makes a distinction between himself and them. He is the son. They are those that are slaves to sin, those that will not remain in the house, that practice sin. And what is it that they are doing that is sin, that is the practice of sin? They weren't holding wild parties in the temple. 
There was no drunken orgies going on. These people were very reverent. They were very stoic. They were very careful to obey all the laws. They were always kind, giving, loving, and pleasant to be around. But they were all living in sin, practicing sin. They were all worshiping falsely. They were worshiping a God that is not God. But then he tells them how they can be set free. Through him and him alone. Not keeping the law, which no one can do. Not through sacrifices. Not through a monastic life. Only through him. And then he addresses their main contention. That they can't be slaves because they are the offspring of Abraham. A fact that he does not deny. But why would being children of Abraham be such a big deal? Why would they hold up being his offspring as a proof that they were of God, of his family? Well, it all has to do with the unconditional covenant that God made with this man. A covenant found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, Now Yahweh said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Verse 2, And I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham is given a command in verse 1, You must separate yourself from everything and everyone that you have known. To be mine, you must be willing to obey me in faith. I will show you a land, but you cannot wait until I show you that land to decide whether or not you're going to obey. You obey now, and then I will show you. And these people that are standing in the midst of that promised land that was shown to Abraham long after he obeyed. Verse 2 of Genesis 12 promises that God will make Abraham a great nation, a people so vast and numerous that they will be like the sand on the shore, that God will make his name great, and because of that great name, he will be a blessing to others. But the only way that the name of Abraham could be great is being tied directly into the name of the one that was making this covenant with him. His name had to be synonymous with the I am, which is why so often in the book of Genesis, you will read of the God of Abraham. You couldn't separate the two. Abraham lived a life of faith, and everyone that knew him or knew of him marked him by that and these people that Jesus was talking to at that moment were testimonies of the faithfulness of God in this covenant Jesus even said in verse 37 that he knew that they were physical descendants of Abraham and then in verse 3 of Genesis 12 God promises to set Abraham and his family apart from all others he chooses Abraham He elects him. Based on what? Because Abraham chose him? 
based upon God looking down the corridor of time and seeing that Abraham would choose him, that's why God chose Abraham? Genesis eighteen nineteen, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. No. The biblical doctrine of election is just that. It's biblical. God chooses. He chose Abraham. He chose David. He chooses those that he chooses based upon his divine righteousness and grace alone. And later, Moses will reiterate this choosing, this election, when he tells the offspring of that man Abraham why they were chosen by God. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more a number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And it is to these people, the ones that were supposed to be the blessing to the world, the ones whose God is supposed to be the I am, Yahweh, to these people that Jesus then holds up that pillar of faith that they are, are claiming prove that they are children of God, that proves that they know God, and tells them that while they are physical offspring of his, they do not have the same heart as he did. That while they may be physical offspring of his, they are not really of his family. And then he tells them why they're not. His words do not have a place in their hearts. There was no room for them there. There was no desire for them there. And his words could not be grafted into their hearts. Their hearts would reject those words. His words were not a match for their hearts. But saints, listen. Obedience to his word is the, the litmus test that proves that they were not children of Abraham. How does this apply to us? To you? To me? Do we claim to be grafted in children of Abraham? To be children of God? Are we those that seeing that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them? These people did the ones that were in that religious service, the ones that spent their entire lives following the religious protocol of their day, who showed up at every service, brought something to every potluck, attended every Sunday school, volunteered to teach in the kids' wing. They were not part of the family of God. They were not the spiritual children of Abraham. And then in the last sentence, he tells them why. 
I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. There may have been at least three groups in that crowd on that day, but there were only two types of people. And those two types, those two kinds, remain to this day. Those that are like Christ, those who obey his word, those whose hearts do find a place for his words, which prove that they are part of his father's family, and all the rest, who may say that they believe, may act religious, may show up at every church service, help out in the kids' wing every Sunday, may teach the fifth graders religiously, but who don't know the Father, who don't obey the Son, who do not have a place in their hearts for the Lord, and then listen to their, and those are the ones that listen to their Father. So how can you spot the separation between these two types of people? Easy. The first type has been set free, which means that they are bound by, guided by, completely reliant on the word of God, alone. They obey what it says. They're forgiving. They don't hold grudges. They don't gossip. They're willing to crush any golden calf in their life when the Lord reveals it to them. And they never say, that's not the God that I know, when scripture is presented to them. They are able to live a life not fearing death or illness because they know the one who holds life, true life, in his hands and has given him that life. Jesus pointed to just one thing within the second type that was standing there that day. That third group that, they are, that we are told believed in him. He held up just one thing that proved that they were not his. They sought to kill Jesus. Well, how do these two statements get reconciled? Because we're told that they believed in Jesus. And then Jesus says that his words don't abide in them. And they seek to kill him. They believed in a Jesus that was not the real Jesus. He was the same man as the one that was standing before them. They were looking at the right Jesus. They were thinking of the right man. They had the right guy, but they had not been called by his father, had not had their hearts changed. There was no room in their hearts. Again, this is important. How many today are like this, thinking that they are of Christ, thinking that they are okay with the Lord because they belong to a Southern Baptist church? They're where the right God is being proclaimed. Believed in the correct, believing in the correct God, but are still not his, and their actions prove it. Jesus was going to push a couple more buttons, pick at that scab just a bit more, in order to prove that what he said is true. This saints is love. Scab picking, button pushing. This is the loving thing to do. 
not making people feel good so that they could leave a service and go about living as dead people, thinking that they are alive. The loving thing to do is to preach about the distinction between the two families, to preach on heaven and hell, to preach on sin and what the Lord says a life that belongs to him looks like. Verses 39 through 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Did you notice that Jesus did not change what he told them to make them feel better? Did you notice that although he had acknowledged that they were in fact of Abraham through the flesh, that they were not of Abraham's family, which is shown by their hearts and actions? And did you notice that he had no issue with telling them that we were, they were not of his family, of his father's family, and that they were of a different father? How does that stack up alongside the Jesus that's being preached today in many of most places? The men who claim to be ministers of this God, the one that desires you to be happy, the one that loves the little children, the one that would never send a plague like COVID into the world, the one that is trying his best to keep you all safe, but you better do your part, otherwise you might get it and die. Stay home, stay safe, don't come to church. But be sure and make sure that you send in your money. And those people will. To remain in their saved state, those folks will obey that man and live in fear, live a life of faithlessness and show, and to show that they are still Christian, will continue to send their money in. Saints, I implore you to rethink the Jesus that you claim to know, that you claim to have saved you from your self-imposed eternal life in hell. Is he the Jesus that is standing there on that day, taking on all those religious leaders, a man who would not live cowardly, talking behind the backs of the men who were teaching falsely about his father, teaching secretly and contradicting them, all the while being part of their false anti-God system. This describes the actions of Judas, not Christ. That Jesus would not be part of that system. He would stand against that system because it could not save, because it presented a false God, because it did not bring glory to his Father. Your actions, my actions, prove what Jesus we follow. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your Father. Our actions don't save, but they prove that we are saved or not. They are the litmus test that Jesus gave these people on that day. 
Saints, I implore you, look to Jesus, the real Jesus, the I am Jesus, the one that has no issue with being completely exclusive, the one that has no issue with offending those that defame the name of his Father, the one who is not cowardly, not willing to go along to get along. Look to Jesus, the one, the only one, who can and will set you free, free to be confident in him, confident enough to live by faith and not by sight, confident enough to stand on him, in him, to stand and die for him, because in him is life. He is light. He is the light of the life of men. This Jesus is the only one that can save. Look to this Jesus. Let's pray.